Last September, I was standing at a street corner in the Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh. The reason I was here goes all the way back to the 1960s, to the Vietnam War and the conflict in Northern Ireland. On my 31st birthday, driving into Belfast in my nice company car with my suit jacket hung up on the back, and I remember the point where I crossed the River Lagan and I thought, I'm going to be doing the same journey 30 years from now, and instantly got depressed. Um, and that was the start of a, the start of a root loosening process. Uh, call it a midlife crisis, call it the hand of God, call it what you will. Um, we went through um, a time of uh, reflection uh, and looking at uh, what life could, could offer. Um, before coming to Cambodia, Carson and I had never travelled to a developing country. We'd never travelled to Southeast Asia, so Cambodia was our first, first stop. And Cambodia is a country where, our, in our experience, people come and either love it or hate it. And when I landed in Phnom Penh, I lost my heart. The Carson Audrey mentions is Carson Hart. Hi, I'm Carson Hart. I'm a County Down man. Uh, came out to Cambodia in 1993. And Audrey is Carson's wife. Thank you, Hart. I couldn't sit The conflict in Cambodia goes back to the 1960s and what was known then as the sideshow to the main event, the Vietnam War. Above all, let's keep events in Southeast Asia in their proper perspective. The security and the progress of hundreds of millions of people everywhere depend importantly on us. Cambodia has been used and abused as a country for decades. After the Vietnam War, the Khmer Rouge took control and killed almost three million of its own people. What I find outrageous and immoral is the argument that this bombing somehow led to the genocide of three million people by their own government. The Americans, the Soviets, the Chinese, the Vietnamese have all played their part in Cambodia having the distinction of being the most bombed and mine-infested place on earth. That's why Carson and Audrey came here, and it's why I'm here too. Um, we arrived in 1993, uh, which was early days. We were still in emergency phase. Um, in those days, we couldn't move outside of the city. Uh, it was too dangerous. Um, the, uh, they were still fighting outside in the countryside. The Khmer Rouge were still active. And um, we uh, were restricted in our travel. If we did want to travel outside of the city, uh, we had to go in convoy. I came out to Cambodia in 1993, got involved with this uh, organisation, uh, training prosthetists, orthodists. A prosthetist is someone who makes prosthesis, fits designs, puts them on, aligns them and um, makes a person comfortable in them. A prosthesis is anything that replaces a part of the body that's missing. So an artificial leg is a prosthesis. I suppose officially dentures are prosthesis, but uh, we don't do dentures. They're, they're, some, they're another profession altogether. Uh, orthotics are anything that supports a part of the body or modifies its shape or strengthens it. So prosthetics, replacement, orthotics support. Very simple. Back in Belfast in 93, things were not that different. It was still a year before the IRA ceasefire. During the 80s and 90s, 
Carson worked in Belfast dealing with victims of bombings and kneecappings, so he was well qualified to deal with Cambodia's landmine victims. Yeah, guns in the street weren't a big issue for us. We certainly, we, we laughed at uh, our American friends and um, British friends who got themselves excited about gunfire and about um, the odd bang in the night. Um, we were certainly used to the occasional bang in Belfast and, um, and, and certainly professionally at Musgrave Park Hospital. Um, there was a noticeable part of my workload uh, where it was injured people, I mean, from both sides of the conflict. And you would have had that very strange situation where occasionally you would have had uh, somebody from, people from opposite sides, shall we say, um, sharing a waiting room or even sharing a clinic room and sharing one thing in common. Both had given up a leg for their cause <laughs> and, and always were wondering, was it worth it, <laughs> to be honest? Um, no, I'd, I certainly had plenty of experience of, uh, of, of, of trauma treatment um, at, at Musgrave. Okay, so can, can you do a radio check with the location? While Carson deals with the victims, I want to find out more about what's doing the damage. I've heard there were more than one million landmines laid in Cambodia. I'm at the headquarters of the demining charity Halo Trust. So this is a, an HF radio, high-frequency radio. Uh, my name is Grant Salisbury. I'm acting as Deputy Program Manager here in Cambodia for the Halo Trust. And we have about 1,100 staff, and I'm one of the managers that uh, runs this operation. We do mine clearance and also uh, disposal of exploded ordnance. In Cambodia, the problem of unexploded ordnance is widespread, we might even say generalized. Anywhere where there were troops fighting is an area that potentially people are going to find unexploded ordnance. That's compounded by the fact that the Americans bombed in huge quantities uh, during the late 60s and early 70s. So there is a generalized problem from unexploded ordnance that cannot be realistically cleared. We can't send out teams and just clear all of Cambodia for the threat of unexploded ordnance, even though huge swathes of the countryside do have that threat. What we do instead is we respond through an um, explosive ordnance disposal call-out service to any items that local communities find. Particularly in the era before mobile phones, having communications between all our teams is or remains essential. It's been aided by the development of mobile phones, but this is our primary means of communication. And it's even if all the cell networks in country go out, we can still communicate with all our teams, coordinate movements, and in the event of accidents, prepare a helicopter casualty evacuation and make all the arrangements with local hospitals to in anticipation of a victim's arrival. The Halo Trust has a very good safety record with staff, but the reality of the dangers of one million landmines in the ground means that the majority of victims are children herding animals or playing in fields. These are the, the nasty little yes. weapons of war. Absolutely. Um, most of the time what people are thinking about when they think of a landmine is an anti-personnel blast mine. That's a mine, which you'll see here, which is generally ranges from the size of your fist to, uh, well, maybe a bit larger than that. And it's usually a fairly simple mechanical. You may touch it. 
these have all had their explosive fill removed and rendered safe so that for display purposes. Uh, this one... It's like a little plastic uh, compact box for makeup or a little, a little tub that you'd get cream cheese in or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, about quite the, innocent looking. Exactly, it's about the size of uh, a lady's jewellery box or something like that. Um, okay, what, what I'm holding here is a, a Chinese anti-personnel blast mine, which we call the Type 72 Alpha. It's a very common anti-personnel mine we find in Cambodia and it was laid exclusively by the Khmer Rouge which gives you an idea of who was supporting whom the process is very simple, you have a pressure plate on top so the weight of a human foot would compress this plate so the effect of that then is to send a blast upwards yeah, so the It will literally blow your foot off. Yeah, this, this mine is designed to take off your, your foot. Um, Anti-personnel blast mines have a fairly steep blast cone, so which means that the, the blast wave is directed upwards and towards the, the foot that, that, that initiated the mine. Um, most landmines are designed to maim but not to kill, the underlying notion being that it takes more of your enemy's resources to support a wounded soldier than it does to bury him. Since 1970, there have been 60,000 civilian deaths from landmines in Cambodia. A further 44,000 civilians have been maimed. And this year, there will be another 300 victims. So while the wars might have ended, the weapons continue to kill and wound. The initial purpose of Carson's work was fitting limbs. The, the reason why the, the Cambodia Trust came to Cambodia in the first place was a direct response to um, a request to do something for the soldiers who had been injured and maimed during conflict. And uh, the, the problem was, was just simply enormous, with a huge number of young people uh, injured and killed as a result of the unexploded ordnance and, and uh, conflict. Um, so the initial response of Cambodia Trust was to come and simply make legs. But that's not sustainable. Um, an artificial limb is, is like a shoe. Uh, you can either grow out of it, it will wear out, uh, or you know, it needs to be replaced. So um, simply providing people with limbs wasn't going to be sustainable. Um, in 1993, Carson was offered the, the uh, opportunity to set up the first school of, Cambod uh, of prosthetics and orthotics in Cambodia. And it was that idea, it was that opportunity that really inspired us because um, to simply come and make legs is, is a finite thing. You're not, you're not transferring any skills or, any, or adding any values as such. To come to a country and pass over the skill that you have to uh, other people, to enable and empower them, um, is just entirely unique and a privilege. Uh, how could they refuse? The issue is is not entirely simple. I mean, it's not just a matter of bunging on a leg. Okay, that's where we started. We brought in a lot of people who, who knew how to make legs, and we bunged on a lot of legs. But the problem with working like that is that within six months of you departing, there's not a leg fit. Because if any, any of the listeners are involved in uh, or know someone who's had a, an amputation, 
uh, in the first year you need, you need up to three legs because as the soft tissue consolidates, as the swelling goes down, it starts to become a rattling fit and then that has to be adjusted and eventually replaced. So um, having a, you know, a visiting service where you pop in once a year and you, you gather up a lot of people and you're making a lot of nice photographs, doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. The setting up infrastructure, it became apparent very, very quickly to Cambodia Trust that having Cambodians do it permanently in the country uh, was the way forward. And if you remember years ago, there was an old campaign that always ran at Christmas to stop people buying puppies at Christmas and abandoning them at New Year. A dog is not for Christmas, it's for life. Well, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful in any shape or form, but as soon as a young person with an amputation walks through our doors, it's not a one-time event, fitting them with a leg. It's a lifetime commitment. The first year he's going to be in three times. The second year he's going to be in, in twice. And then depending on his job, he's going to be in every year or every two years afterwards. Um, and if we let this all fall over, or if we went home, or if we said, well, we've done a really good thing, bye-bye, within, within a year of us departing, nothing we've done would actually be working. So that's why we have to put Cambodians here, Cambodians doing it, Cambodians doing it for other Cambodians. Thank you, Horn. <laughs> Audrey <laughs> leaves me at the school that Carson has built up over the years. OK, we're here. <laughs> it's now located in a bright new building on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. The school and clinic wouldn't be out of place in any city in Ireland. I'm given a tour of the school by King Cicere, who will take over this year as the first Cambodian manager of the school at just 30 years of age. So we are in the reception uh, counter. The reception is actually a place where we greet our clients who come in through the door. The first point of contact for clients is usually from Cambodia Trust outreach teams in villages across the country. And for instance, if a person lost a limb through landmine, or the, uh, the wig is very... The next stage of the treatment is the assessment, where a cast is made of the damaged limb. So we would use the plaster bandage to wrap around the, the limb and to take the, we call cast, a mould from the limb so that we can duplicate the mould. The cast is made into a mould from which the prosthetic limb will be made. So, for instance, after we have an impression from the casting room where we've been to, it's It's a serious manufacturing process using what's called appropriate technology. It's not high-tech, cutting-edge stuff, but it is affordable and sustainable. Nineteen years on, it's easy to forget that Carson left a good job behind in Belfast to take his family halfway around the world to a country ravaged by conflict. Um, the place was slightly crazy. Uh, it certainly was no place for uh, a wife and child. Um, it, uh, but the potential was there. It was just at the end of the UN time. A lot of soldiers in the streets, a lot of gunfire, poor electricity and all the rest of it. And all credit to Audrey... Uh, she rolled up her sleeves and she said, we need to do this. And um, we felt very clear, uh, a very clear call that this was what our lives were about. So we, we threw ourselves at it um, to such an extent that I have a, a, a 
tall Irish red-haired daughter uh, who's more Cambodian than our Cambodian daughter. <laughs> Explain that to me. Well, she was brought up here. It was her formative years. Um, she, uh, I suspect she'll be back here in some role or other uh, at some point in the future. Uh, this, is, this feels like home to her. Uh, our other daughter, um, who, is, uh, who is Cambodian, um, we adopted uh, in 1994. Uh, she's, um, she's now 17, but her formative years were back in Ireland. So she's all dogs and ponies and welly boots and wax jackets and, uh, you know, uh, probably spend her life um, driving a tatty van with a horse box behind it, you know. <laughs> Cambodia had come out of, um, had been really a closed country, um, been isolated by the, by the West, um, firmly in the old communist bloc. Uh, towards the end of the 80s, uh, Paris Peace Accord was put in place and the, um, all the money support that had been coming in for development through Vietnam, originating in, in Russia, tailed off. And as Russia fell over um, in terms of the USSR, that, uh, the wall coming down thing, uh, the impact here was that um, that source of external aid uh, vamushed. Uh, so um, the ongoing civil war uh, between government and Khmer Rouge, which was mostly focused in the north and west, uh, the peace was brokered and eventually uh, uh, elections were held at the beginning of 93, March 93, and a government was formed uh, which then took over from uh, the United Nations Transitional Authority. And Cambodia was the first country into which the UN came and ruled it for a period and then worked it through into a democratic change. Um, so day to day, uh, very few cars in the street. The city was about a third the size. Um, Western goods weren't that easy to get. Um, the uh, yeah, electricity was in scarce supply. Um, drainage systems were poor. Um, but the advantage of empty streets was I could always go home at lunchtime for a kip. Uh, it's not like that anymore. It's a very heaving, bustling metropolis. But, you know, every day, several times a day, you heard gunfire. The, the AK-47 was not just a weapon, it was a means of communication. If you thought there was bad boys in your street, you fired in the air. If it started to rain, you fired in the air. If, um, it, uh, if there was a fire in your street, you called the fire brigade by firing in the air. Uh, if you needed the police to come, you fired in the air. Um, and so gunfire was a day-to-day -day thing. I do remember one occasion we were watching television on a, early on a Saturday evening, watching a video, and we heard a burst of automatic fire from outside our gate, and Audrey's response was, oh, it must be raining, i better go and bring the laundry in. <laughs> but um, being so unused, so different from Ireland, so different from Ireland, was, was, was the joy of it, uh, and the joy of being able to figure out how to live a reasonable lifestyle with two, two gas rings and, um, and a small wooden house, uh, I'd, I would definitely do it again. I would recommend it to anybody. Good to get, get all the trapping knocked away and start from scratch again, see what's important.
much of that civil war with the Khmer Rouge took place in the northwest of Cambodia. As a result, it remains one of the most densely mined places on earth. Today, I'm back with Grant at the minefields along the Thai border. We're searching for and destroying landmines. This work means less work in the long run for Carson. The road's getting a bit muddy. I'm going to try not to drive into the rice paddy. Right now we're driving along the alignment of an old road that um, Irish teams have been clearing and dotted along the, the sides of the road are dozens and dozens of the other stakes, each of which marks the position of a, of a landmine that was found and destroyed. These are uh, mines laid by the Khmer Rouge, a Chinese model called the Type 72 Alpha. They're small green mines about comfortably fit in the palm of your hand and they're designed to take off someone's, someone's foot. The, uh, the real threat, however, is the thing which we can see on the, or passing on the right side, which is anti-tank mines that claim a disproportionate number of victims because they destroy entire vehicles and tend to kill the occupants of the vehicles. So um, the anti-personnel mines are certainly a threat but it's really the anti-tank mines that are the reason that we're working here because they would claim potentially dozens of victims at a time. And have the people who are living here know, have they always known that there was landmines? Yes, but this was the land that they were allocated by the government and services where they've uh, had to build their houses. There's um, a whole school and uh, community centre pagoda also that have been built knowingly within a minefield. It's only when you arrive at a village like this, surrounded by mines, that you realise how dangerous daily life can be here. <laughs> Location manager Macra introduces me to one family. A friend lost leg by mines, but he just he had spread all the area around his house, like in front there, that okay. we are clear already, but behind his house. Is still minefield. Okay. He feel that is he afraid and told the kid don't go there. So it must be difficult to stop the children going into the fields. Yes. Yes. Difficult to, to stop the, the kid. The children. Okay. Yeah. She said she she coming to living here uh, since uh, year two thousand, and the H Meru, he told her, don't go to that area. Don't go to that area because they know mines. Told her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So there were Khmer Rouge living here. Yeah. And they said, "Don't go here." Yeah, don't go here. Told so her to so understand the area. And uh, okay. These are. I just asked her uh, what area she was living. Okay. I just asked her the easy to earn the money in this area. What they earn from? They said, uh, working in Thailand as a labor. Oh, so they go from here to. Yeah, to Thailand, Thailand quick. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that. Okay. And is she happy that the the demining is happening. <laughs> <laughs> he sees, uh, feel uh, very happy. Uh, one thing he can walk, you know, can walk safely, and then do more agriculture. Okay, thank you. Yeah.
Later on, Macra tells me that eight members of his own family were killed by the Khmer Rouge when he was a child, simply because his father was a teacher. Sure. So right now we're walking down a very muddy strip of the road that formerly linked Malai District to uh, Siem Reap, essentially. We are on a section of that old road which has was abandoned because of the number of landmines laid. And we're walking past uh, well dozens of yellow stakes, each of which marks the location of a landmine that was found and destroyed by Halo's teams. I'm putting body armour on me now. Um, there's a couple of famous photographs of people wearing this body armour. Yes, you're thinking of the iconic image of Princess Diana wearing exactly what you have on you now. Um, and she visited a minefield being cleared by Halo Trust in Angola. And the picture that was taken of her is probably the most famous image that people remember. And it's also the reason why they associate Princess Diana with the work that we do. Her son, Prince Harry, came to visit uh, Halo and actually spent the night in a Halo deminer camp and uh, sort of repeated or walked in his mother's footsteps. Okay, and now it's my turn. Now it's your turn, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. um, on our left, you can see the local population has already planted rice in the areas which we've, we've cleared. Uh, we haven't obviously finished clearance of the site yet, but the pressure for land is so strong that even, even this bit has been reclaimed. That's literally five or six meters from the edge here of the minefield. Yeah, well, that, uh, that, this area was in fact part of the minefield. It, uh, you can see this, the yellow stakes within this rice paddy still marking the locations of mines that we found just uh, you know days or weeks before they planted it. It starts to give you an idea that just how much demand there is for agricultural land in this country and the risk which people are willing to take in order to either increase the size of their fields or just to, uh, to, to build their village or, or all these things. This is this H damage detector which combines ground penetrating radar with metal detection technology. And you're going to hear the metal detector, which I will demonstrate for you now. And then you'll hear the beeping, which is the ground penetrating radar indicating that it has found a positive response. So the operator is listening to both the metal detector and to those beeps, which are the GPR, the indication of the GPR in action. And together he's going to make a determination of whether the signal is in fact just a simple scrap of metal or whether there is uh, an object that needs to be investigated. In front of me there are about two dozen people, all in full body armour, scraping, raking, using metal detectors and radar to search for these remnants of war buried just below the surface. Uh, we are checking, the field of us are checking, we found a big signal in here. So, here's the tank mine. No. 
Makara has located a viable anti-tank mine containing about four kilos of explosives. So there's only one type of anti-tank mine made in this country, and that's the TM-46, which is a Soviet model, very simple, basic anti-tank mine, metal body, easy to find. The complicating factor is that there are always small anti-personnel mines laid right around it, which have very minimal amounts of metal content and are very difficult to find. So the charge has been set next to the mine and we're now walking back to the firing point along the electrical cable which will be used to initiate the dem. What has, you would have heard the field officer shout to make sure that there were nobody in the surrounding area. We've also, he will also have been positioned sentries to create a cordon around this area to make sure that there is no one within um, 100 meters of the place where the blast will take place. He's going to go back to the firing point and do a final check to make sure that there is no one in this area. And then he will use a exploder, essentially a capacitor, which produces uh, a high voltage charge to initiate the detonator and that will in turn set off the main charge and blow up the mine. How many of these explosions are going on every day on this site, for instance? Well, the number of explosions, the number of demolitions that will be done per day is the same as the number of mines that are found each day. Here we have found over a thousand mines so far, so that would have meant that this process has been done more than a thousand times already. One three. One three, one seven. One three. Get by, double. Get by. Double. Double. In February 2012, a few hundred metres from the site of this demolition, a similar TM-46 anti-tank mine killed eight people in a single explosion. Back in Phnom Penh, County Down native Carson Hart is preparing for his biggest day of the year, the graduation of the 2011 class in prosthetics and orthotics. What started out as a project to replace Cambodian limbs has grown into an international centre of excellence. I did it at one point um, joke and say we were going to change its name to the Axis of Evil School of Prosthetics um, because we have started attracting um, young people from right across the region, as far north as North Korea, as far west as Iraq and Afghanistan, as far south as Kiribati, Papua New Guinea, um, all over Solomon Islands, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Burma, Myanmar, um, Laos, uh, everywhere, everywhere. 
And uh, the reason we do that is um, so that we can maintain this school as a sort of centre of the network of clinics around the country. Because if you, if you leave a set of clinics running in isolation, the quality will eventually spiral down. And in any country where, um, where standards are maintained, whether it be medicine or dentistry or prosthetics and aesthetics, there's always a sort of focal point in that country, and the school's a focal point. But you can't keep on throwing money into an education institute um, on its own um, for no apparent reason. So this school's pretty much now uh, sustained on fee-paying students. Um, we're able to we're able to attract every year uh, on on the intake between nine and ten uh, people who arrive with money in their pocket, um, and the other two or three places are then allocated to Cambodians, and we go out and look for supporters uh, to to back those people, and it um, moves them up, keeps keeps the whole pot boiling, keeps the whole thing turning over. So very quickly, how do you feel? Right now, it's always quite exciting. We've done this 16 times. The first one, I could hardly speak for the lump in my throat. Um, still gets me a bit. <laughs> it's, yes, it's nice to see, but especially this class, it's nearly like grandkids, you know, because um, the kids that I taught are now the teachers. Uh, so it's a, a generational shift, this one. Please welcome Mr. Hasselhack, executive director of Cambodia. Thank you, Mr. it's about the individuals and the impact it makes on them um, hope restored uh, maybe some ambition restored uh, doors opened um, and when I see young people now coming in as interns, kids with disability who before would have at best sat at home and maybe washed the floor um, but would have been told for the rest of their lives that they're worthless uh, seeing that Transformation and they're in a workspace and have been treated like everybody else, doing all the stuff that ordinary young interns are doing, including making the coffee and running the errands. Uh, it really comes home just what a huge impact this has on the lives of individuals. On a national scale, um, I mean, if we counted up all the people that have gone through the various rehab centres that have been dealt with by students who graduated from our, our programme. Um, a saving in terms of lost production in this country is, a, is inestimable. I don't know where to start counting it. Um, and then the, uh, what really thrills me is the fact that the landmine disaster here has turned into something more positive for the region. Um, and what we've learned in Cambodia is able to be packaged and moved on to other countries. Uh, the integrated approach, putting it all in one place, packaging it properly and um, I count myself very privileged to have been part of it.